Um, I would love for you to open to uh, Luke 17. Um, I am not like Doug. Doug is very charismatic, which I love. He brings a different, uh, a different element to things. Uh, but that, that's not really my style. So if you ride in on the bike, I won't do that. I'll, I'll, just, I'll just be here waiting for you. I could ride with you. I'll ride in on my skateboard. How's that? All right, Luke 17. Uh, We've been making our way through Luke, and so we're pressing on in, uh, in the book of Luke, and glad that you're here with us. If you want to go back and listen to any of the other passages of Luke, you can access that stuff on our website. Or maybe you're with us this morning, you don't have a Bible. Man, we would absolutely love to give you one. We have Bibles at our Welcome Center back there. You could pick one up now or even after church. Uh, maybe you've seen this. Not, not too far from here on a, on a highway, there is, uh, in the valley, there's this big billboard with a, a rather enticing message on it. And it says here in huge letters, probably two stories, here for you, here for you. Comforting words, right? I mean, in a, in a culture like ours, uh, it's nice to know that people can be depended on and counted on, that there are people there for us. They're encouraging words. And upon closer inspection, as you look, what you see is that the advertiser of the billboard is a local church. And I hope these words ring true for some people. I hope that by the Spirit of God, people drive by that billboard and see those words and are enticed by their meaning and end up finding their way to this church where they hear the gospel and have their lives radically transformed by Jesus. One of the many purposes of the church is to be like a city on a hill, a refuge for people to come and escape the craziness of the world, a refuge for the broken, a rehab center where sinners can be transformed by the grace of God. That is absolutely true, and praise God for that. And if you ever drive by the billboard, I would ask that you pray that that church is that kind of church. But as I drove by that advertisement for the first time, I found myself wondering, man, is that really what Christianity is all about? Is that what it's all about? Is that the central truth of the Christian message that we want the world to know? At the core of the Christian message, are we to believe that God is here for us first and foremost? Is our goal as a church, as believers, to persuade people that the mission of the church is about being a warm place, a safe, inviting place, a place for people to come and feel good about themselves? Is that, is that what we're doing? Now, don't misunderstand, please, okay? Scripture teaches very clearly God is here for us. I mean, I, I prayed that. That is an amazing thought. The God of all of the universe makes himself available to you. Scripture teaches God loves us. He daily bears us up. He meets all of our needs in Christ Jesus. And that's an encouraging message, unlike any other message. And people need to hear that message, especially in our unstable world today. And the Bible does tell us that the church is an organization that exists in part for the nurturing, loving care of Christians in a family-type experience. So those things are absolutely true. And we We are richly blessed by them. But I don't think that that adequately summarizes what Christianity is really all about. I don't think that that's the primary reason for which God has saved sinners and gathered to himself 
his bride, the church. I mean, the message here for you, I think, places the subject in the wrong place. It asserts the subject of Christianity as the wrong thing, because actually, humans are not the subject of Christianity. They're not the subject of the Christian message. So, I just want to give you a heads up as I begin here. If you think that the message of Christianity is that God is first and foremost here for you, I am super glad that you're here this morning. I want our church to be a place where you feel like we can be available to you. Uh, I hope that you experience that this morning. But I need to warn you that I think you're going to find the teaching of Jesus here in Luke 17 in our passage of Scripture rather offensive. And I want to make you aware of that ahead of time. I I want to kind of warn you, because Jesus does not believe that the message of Christianity is first and foremost that God is here for you. And he's not going to, uh, he's going to say that, He's, he's going to assert that God is not here for you with some rather stinging clarity in these verses that we're going to look at. It's not that Jesus' goal is to be offensive. I don't don't think he gets kicks out of offending people. I don't think he takes joy in offending people. He's not attempting to turn people away or be repulsive in his message. It's just that the message that Jesus brings requires us to see the world as we know it sort of upside down. Whereas from our perspective, probably the way that you were raised, the way that's natural to your thinking, is that humans are actually the center of the universe. We are the meaning of creation. We are the apex of evolution, if you will. We are the most important thing that this planet, this world, this existence has to offer. Make it even more specific. You You are the most important thing in all of the universe. And what Jesus is going to say is that's simply not true. It's not. According to Jesus, he is the center of the universe. He is the meaning of creation. He is the apex of existence. And he is the most important thing. So we are here for him. And at the very core, the proclamation of the Christian message is the truth that the one true God of the Bible is the only one that eternally matters, past, present, and future. He alone is glorious, and all things exist for the praise of his name, and we find our eternal significance only in him. So let me read these verses with you. Luke 17. I'm going to read verses 7 through 10. Jesus says, will any one of you who has a servant plowing or keeping sheep say to him when he's come in from the field, come, come at once and recline at table? Will he not rather say to him, prepare supper for me and dress properly and serve me while I eat and drink and afterward you will eat and drink? Does he thank the servant because he did what was commanded? So you also, when you have done all that you were commanded, say, we are unworthy servants. We have only done what was our duty. And the central question of this text is simply this. Does man serve God or does God serve man? Do we exist to serve God or does God exist to serve us? 
And how you answer that question has unfathomable significance for the way that you live your life now and the way that you will live your life eternally. Let me look at the questions presented to us in verses 7 through 9. Jesus says, will any one of you as a servant plowing or keeping sheep, man, that's a long day's work right there, say to him when he's come in from the field, come at once, recline at table, come, come make yourself comfortable, you look hot and sweaty and tired. Now, Jesus doesn't give us an answer to the question, and it's a rhetorical question, which means the audience doesn't respond either. At least that's not recorded here. But what is the implied answer based on the weight of the text that we just read? It's obviously what? No. No. Now, the word that my—I like the ESV translation. That's typically what I go to. You may have a different translation, but the ESV uses the word here, uh, servant, behind that word is in Greek the word doulos. We don't really actually have a great English word to translate doulos. Most English versions choose the word servant, but in reality the meaning is actually closer to slave. Slave. But because of the American history of slavery that's so ugly and it, it conjures up these awful connotations in our minds as it should, we, uh, most English translations tend to veer away from that and use something like servant or bond servant. My, my point in bringing this up is that Jesus is not talking about a paid employee. He's not talking about a servant who earns a wage and has a right, maybe, therefore, to question his neighbor or go look for a better job. Jesus is talking about a slave who is owned by his master, a person whose life does not actually belong to him. The master does not invite his slave, his doulos, his servant, to sit at his table while the master then goes and cooks the food and and dresses up and presents it to his slave. Verse 8, Will the master not rather say to his slave, Prepare supper for me. And dress properly and serve me while I eat and drink. And then afterward you will eat and drink. Does the master thank the servant because he did what was commanded? Again, what is the implied answer to the question in verse 9? Does the master thank the servant for the work that he's expected to do? No. It is the role of the servant to serve. And it is the role of the master to be served. And in spite of the ugly past of slavery in America, if we're really honest about the words that Jesus is using here, he's reminding us that the servant is actually a piece of property. Culturally, a doulos had no rights, no privileges, no freedoms. They were actually a piece of property. This slave, this servant, has no right to take authority over his owner, his master, He is to do the bidding of his master. So the question is clearly laid out for us in the illustration that Jesus presents. Does man serve God or does God serve man? Obviously, the Christian answer to that question is man serves God. That is the purpose for which we were made. But if we follow the storyline of Scripture, we go back to Genesis 3, we see that very quickly in the story, tragically, man decides he doesn't want to serve God. 
Adam and Eve rebel against God. And ever since then, man has been trying desperately hard to make himself the object of the story, the leading role in the story, with God maybe as sort of a secondary role, if God has any role whatsoever. He's just a support figure. So if you talk with just about any American today who's not a Christian, and you, you really just ask some, some probing questions, and you explore their worldview, their mind, their deepest convictions, it's going to become abundantly clear that the vast majority of people think themselves as the center of the universe. They believe as if they are God. I mean, twice a week now I'm driving up to Scottsdale for school, and I'm, I'm not suggesting I'm not guilty of this either, but all you have to do is spend 10 minutes on a freeway to see that the world is populated with people who think that they're God. They are accountable to no one. They deserve whatever they desire, a life full of good things, blessing, happiness, favor, riches, a happy ending to the story. But Jesus, in a single illustration, really turns the whole world upside down. He explains, we are here for God, for His purposes, for His benefit, for His glory, for Him to do with as He pleases. He is the master and we are the servants. He is the creator and we are the creatures. Try putting that on a billboard on a freeway, though, and see how that goes. I mean, if you want to see the depth of rebellion in the human heart against God, how absolutely foreign the idea that God is God and we are not is to humankind. Try this. Try this. Try going through a whole day reminding every person that you encounter, that you talk to, that they belong to God, that he will judge their actions, that he alone is master of the universe, that their life is his, that they are his subject and he is their master. Spend a day telling every person that you encounter that they're nothing more than a creature and a servant of the one true God. They exist for his glory, and one day he will call them to account. See how that goes. My guess would be that you would come home at the end of the day with at least a black eye and some missing teeth. I have a hard time believing that people around you would respond well. They would call you angry, judgmental, whatever other negative words they can think of. Because the truth is, people in their sinful state think that they have every right to sit at the table of God and demand that He come and serve them whatever their hearts desire. The idea that they have every right to be God. And contrary, the idea that God has every right to be God, to be master, people as a whole despise that idea. They reject that idea. But this is what Jesus says. He even goes so far, I think, to add insult to injury and expect that a thank you, a thank you, after plowing the field, taking care of the sheep, cooking dinner, doing the dishes, serving the master, and making sure that he is absolutely comfortable before they look to any of their own needs. Jesus actually thinks, to say, uh, thinks that saying thank you after all of that is too much to ask for. I mean, he seems to imply that those actions, those long hours of work and toil and service for the master are not actions that go above and beyond 
that they should elicit some sort of appreciation. Jesus says that's the expectation, plain and simple. And so even if we are the most hardworking, most well-behaved people in all of history, that still would not obligate God to say thank you and praise us at the end of the story. We are his creatures. And at the end of a life of hard work serving him, we can only bow our heads in humility and profess that we are unworthy and we've only done our duty to God. When Mother Teresa approached the throne of God after she died, she didn't receive a litany of praise from the mouth of God. Rather, she declared to God, I'm an unworthy servant. I've only done what was my duty. Let me look at this from another angle. Bear with me here. There's a funny book that I read as a kid that was made into a movie a few years ago called The Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy by Douglas Adams. It's a really silly science fiction book, uh, but there's an illustration from it that I would like to borrow to give you some mental relief for a moment, okay? The premise of the book is that all of the earth and the people on it are really just this sophisticated computer program, which has been designed to answer the question of life, the universe, and everything, which people struggle to come to terms with, right? And it turns out that in the story, All of the humans, the giant earth that we live on, are just this colossal computer lab experiment. And the ones running the experiment are mice. Yes, the mice are running the experiment. Do you see the reversal here? Mice end up being these super intelligent creatures living in labs, studying humans, doing experiments on them so that they can reach conclusions about the meaning of life, the universe, and everything. So while the scientists in lab coats think they are running experiments on mice in labs, in reality, it's the mice in the labs running experiments on the humans. Douglas Adams sort of inverts the idea that we would think of, right? You think about lab experiments, and you think about men in white coats, women in white coats doing experiments on cute little mice, right? He inverts the idea, and it's rather clever. Stupid, absurd plot line, but it makes for a rather funny work of fiction. But you know what? That sounds suspiciously like the way that we view the world, doesn't it? As if we, the inferior creation of God, the mice in the cage, are really the ones running the show. As if we, the creatures made in the image of God, had somehow surpassed his intelligence. So that while we were created for his good pleasure, we've somehow flipped the roles around so that God has become the test subject on which we exercise our authority over him, manipulating him for our good pleasure. As if the slave had somehow become the master and taken his position of authority. Listen to this verse in Proverbs 30. It it speaks to how horrible this reversal would be. It says, under three things the earth trembles, under four it cannot bear up. A slave when he becomes king, and a fool when he's filled with food, an unloved woman when she gets a husband, and a maidservant when she displaces her mistress. If you ever wonder why the world is such a screwed up place, it's because 
man has attempted to make himself God. It's because the creature has tried to overthrow the creator. It's because the slave has taken his or taken the seat at the table of the master, declaring himself king. And scripture teaches the world cannot bear up under it. It trembles as a result. Now, please understand, the church is here for people. I mean, we're thrilled that you are here. If there is a need that you have that we can meet, we want to help meet it. And Jesus came to save. That is an immeasurable benefit which he has given to man. But it's important that we have a right understanding of our position before God as we approach him. If we think that we are already sitting at the table, that we are the master of this house, then we have no need for God whatsoever. What could he offer to us? What help could he provide that we don't think we already have in our pride? Nothing. He has nothing. We've written him out of the picture. But if we acknowledge that we indeed are a servant, if we're honest about the fact that we are the slave in the house which belongs to him, that our very existence is dependence upon, or dependent upon the kindness and provision that he gives us as master. If we acknowledge that the fields are his and he's kind to let us work them, that he's gracious to let us live in his house, feed us from his own flock, protect us from the dangers outside, then we see the benefit of being a servant in the house of God. But there's still so much more to this story because I want you to understand that this story doesn't just remind us of our proper place in relation to God. It tells us so much about how amazing our God is. I mean, do you see the beautiful gospel implications in this passage of Scripture? I want to tease this out for a few more minutes. It is not right for the servant to overthrow the authority of his master. It's not right for the servant to seat himself at the table. But what if the master chose to humble himself and become like a servant? What if the master took the initiative? What if the master willingly set aside his regal robes and took up the towel to serve? What if the master were to prepare a feast with his own hands while his servant is out in the field. And when his servant enters, the master chooses to clothe him in his best robes and seat him at his own table. What if the master were to take up the dishes and serve the servant, relieving him of his duties, treating him like a king? Well, then again, the whole world is turned upside down, right? What master would treat his servant in such a way? Instead of the servant demanding the place of honor, instead, the master willingly gives it up, gladly elevating the slave to the seat of priority at the table. Guys, this is the God that we serve. I mean, in many ways, this passage tells us about our position before God, but in many other ways, doesn't it tell us about our God's grace and kindness and favor in the way that he treats us? If we look at the parable that Jesus points or paints for us in this parable, we realize that the expectation is that the master will fulfill the role of the master and the servant will do what is expected to him. That is the right and proper order of the world. 
But then we can go back through each and every one of these verses and we can see that Jesus, the master, willingly gives up his rights so that you and I might be exalted, even being the lowly servants that we are. It's so beautiful. It's such a beautiful role reversal. See, the world is going to tell you, it's going to teach you that you need to fight for your place at the table and if you don't do it, nobody else is going to. If you don't, you're going to lose out. But Jesus teaches that even though our place is in the backyard with the farm animals and the other creatures, he has invited us gladly to sit at his table while he serves us hand and foot. He gives us dignity, honor, privilege. Will any one of you who has a servant plowing or keeping sheep say to him when he's come in from the field, come at once and recline at table? No, of course not. That would be absurd. It would be improper. And yet that's exactly what Jesus has done. And he followed up by telling us at sunrise, don't go back out to the field to complete the work. I will go on your behalf. Will he not rather say to him, prepare supper for me and dress properly and serve me while I eat and drink? And then afterward, you can go and eat and drink. Yeah, that's exactly what the master should do. He should be first. He should take his rights. But instead, Jesus prepared a table for us at the feast of the Father where we are nourished through the true food of his body and his blood. He waits on us, filling us with all the fullness of the sacrificial lamb. Verse 9, does he thank the servant because he did what was commanded? Of course not. So you also, when you've done all that you were commanded, you say, we are unworthy servants. We have only done what is our duty. And after all that Christ has already done for us, the things that I've described in redeeming us, saving us, seating us at the table of the Father, preparing a banquet for us, after all of that, should we expect to hear from him? Great job. No, we should expect nothing because we have done nothing, but instead we hear him say to us, well done, good and faithful servant. Enter into the reward of your master. The message Jesus came proclaiming was that God wants you at his table, not because you deserve it, but because he's gloriously gracious and kind. But the way that you get a seat at his table is not by taking it upon yourself to sit in a place where you don't belong or you don't deserve, but instead by letting Jesus say, let me seat you at the seat of honor at my Father's table because I love you. What I find so compelling about the God of Christianity is that you cannot find a God more worthy of glory Look at so many other gods that humanity has made up and they are cruel and vindictive and strange. Much more like humans. But you cannot find a God more glorious than the God of Scripture. Who is like Him? Who has known the mind of our God that they would counsel Him? Who stored the oceans in the deep and set the sun on fire? Who placed the stars traversing in the sky? Who, before the ages began, formed man from the dust of the earth and made man in his image? 
Who in the skies can compare to the Lord? Who among the heavenly beings is like the Lord? A God greatly to be feared in the counsel of the holy ones and awesome and above all who are around him. O Lord, God of hosts, who is mighty as you are, O Lord, with your faithfulness all around you. In page after page after page, That is the description of the glorious God that we worship. There is no one like our God, so worthy of honor and praise and adoration and glory. And while he has every right to sit on his throne and demand the adoration of the nations, instead we find he puts on the rags of a carpenter to lift mankind out of death and despair, out of poverty and sin, to seat us at the table of his Father. See, many people, when they get exposed to this idea that the God of Christianity is zealous for his own glory, is passionately seeking his own glory, they begin to think that's very selfish. It's very unjust. It's it's unkind. It's narcissistic. Who does God think he is that he can pursue his own glory while we serve him. But the truth is, we as his creatures have no right to bring any charges against him. Not that we need to, because if we look at this God, we find he is the very antithesis of narcissism, injustice, or selfishness. He gives and gives and gives. What more could he give than Jesus Christ? He does, in every action that he carries out, seek his own glory relentlessly and without apology. After all, he is the master of the house, and it should be no other way. And yet, in everything that he does to bring praise to his glorious name, he lifts up the humble beside him. He cares for the broken and the weary, so that the slave that trusts his master the slave that seeks the good of his master, is never left without the praise and adoration of his master and the full provision of his household at his disposal. See, you can rebel against the master of the house and he will send you further and further out to fields more distant to the house. And you still remain under his authority all the while. Or you can serve him diligently and be joyfully astounded when he brings you into his home to place you at the table, at the seat that he has reserved for the guest of honor. You can be offended by his authority and you can seek a piddly place of your own in which to pout about your poverty. Or you can come under his authority and receive everything that he has as your inheritance. You can claim that God exists to serve you, that he is here for you, and end up sorely disappointed when he never acknowledges your works. Or you can embrace the wonderful truth that you have been created to serve him, and you can be overjoyed when he calls you friend, when he calls you child, when he calls you his beloved. So let me leave you with this nagging question. Does God exist to serve you, or do you exist to serve God? Let me pray.
God, I pray that you would write our hearts and write our minds. That we would think about our position before you truly and rightly. That we are, in fact, unworthy servants. That our proper place is behind the plow, is with the sheep, is in the kitchen doing dishes, serving you. God, I pray that we would be truthful about who you are as God and who we are as your creatures. And God, I pray that we would revel in the fact that you are the most glorious one, that you deserve all praise and honor and adoration and glory. And yet you are willing to set that aside that we might be saved and redeemed and lifted up. And Lord, I pray that understanding that truth would lead us to ever greater praise of your name. We thank you that in the pursuit of your own glory, you have brought us redemption. And we worship you for that. And I pray, Father, that we would be a people who bring ever greater glory to your name, to the name of Jesus. And that as we do that, the world that looks on would see that here is a God who truly loves what he has made, cares for those in his possession. Father, would you do this work in and through us, and we worship you. Amen.